Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing, brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm your host, David Thornton. Investing hasn't been easy these past few years. The ASX 200 did 1.4% in 2020, 17% in 2021, and then negative 1% last year. Hugely volatile. As most fund managers struggled to match the benchmark, DAC Capital's Absolute Return Fund has generated an enormous 25% per annum over the last three years. Staggering performance that most fund managers would give their left arm to get. This week's guest is DAC Capital's founder, Emmanuel Datt. Datt's modest demeanor belies the rockstar performance he's generated. But not one to rest on his laurels, he's about to launch a new small cap fund that seeks to outperform the small odds index by 5% per annum. Today's episode, we discuss the processes and investments that netted the Absolute Return Fund such stellar numbers, why he believes now is the time to get into small caps, and the investment opportunity he sees in rare earths. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Emmanuel, thanks for joining us on the Rules of Investing. No worries, David. Thanks for having us. You've just made a big call starting a small cap fund during a very interesting time in markets, uh, and we'll get to that. But I'd love to know a little bit more about the man behind DAC Capital. Um, you know, most fund managers who return 25% per annum during volatile markets would be popping the Dom Perignon and screaming from the rooftops. Um, but you're you're a bit more quiet and unassuming. Um, so what or who influenced the way you invest? Yeah, sure, David. Um, that's a great question. I think that... Um Early in my investing days, you know, I um, admired um, big names like Warren Buffett, I guess. But I find that, you know, your preferences change as you mature and grow as an investor. And um, perhaps you uh, begin to admire uh, other investors who are a little bit more niche. So, um, you know, currently I think to... Um, investors um, from, from the past that I guess resonate with me uh, a couple of guys called Richard Rainwater and Carl Icahn um, both of these guys are, um, are successful investors you know ultimately known for their ability to identify undervalued assets and to create value through careful um, strategic planning around these assets so those are probably um, the two foremost in my mind at this stage. So why did you decide to start your own shop? I guess um, it was it felt like the natural thing to do. So to provide a bit of context around that. So we were running our own family capital for uh, a few years, I'd say. And um, I guess in many ways, um, I don't know whether it's a benefit or a curse, but, you know, I feel I was born with the fiduciary gene. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I always feel a strong sense of responsibility and stewardship and ownership to um, protect um, both my own family's capital and, uh, 
in investor capital um, for, for almost the last five years. So I think that um, I really wanted to be of service and utility to um, other you know, individuals out there who, who would put their faith and trust and capital ultimately with me to manage. And so that's what we've done. As I mentioned uh, before, you've generated uh, about 25% per annum over the past two or three years in the abs- multi-asset absolute fund. Mm-hmm. What exposures drove those returns? I think a big um, contributor to that was just really the ability to pivot quickly towards um, sectors that would benefit from the broader market uh, or broader con economic um, initiatives, I guess. Um, so we saw obviously um, yeah, the big downturn um, uh, during um, COVID, you know, March 2020 uh, is, was an yeah, enormous event for markets, but the ability to keep a cool head and allocate capital towards sectors that we felt would do well. And then um, for instance, um, yeah, in the last year, or you know, the majority of our return came from energy exposures. So the ability to pick up upon thematics at a relatively early stage and benefit uh, for a period of time has truly been our strength. And um, just going back to that sort of um, COVID um, downturn, um, so we were reasonably um, heavily exposed towards technology and financial services um, at that time, and um, we rode that wave successfully. And uh, we can't ignore that um, we are, um, I guess, we're recognised investors in the resource space as well. So that's also provided fairly consistent returns for us. You mentioned um, your energy exposures. Are those mostly macro top-down calls? Uh, It's really a combination. Um, So over the last year... um, we did identify uh, you know, the thematic of energy shortages on the horizon, and we were a little bit fortuitous in, in the fact that um, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine, which disrupted you know, the global energy supply chain, and that benefit, benefited us uh, significantly. Um, however, I do feel that um, you know, the resources space is um, a big field with many sub-niches uh, and um, commodities, each with their own individual drivers. So um, it's very important to have that knowledge and understanding. So, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a broad field to, to cover and um, what well, we do it very successfully. Um, staying on commodities, rare earths uh, is one of the hottest commodity subsectors right now. Uh, and you've been quite bullish on rare earth developer and explorer dreadnought resources. Um, what's your investment thesis uh, for the sector and for dreadnought specifically over the next 12 months? I guess speaking a little bit more broadly on the rare earth sector, so rare earths are typically used in magnets um, that are critical for uh, electric vehicle engines, basically. And... Um, China, um, Chinese production has om- almost um, an unequivocal monopoly in this region. So I think that there are very um, a number of very important strategic considerations. We've seen, um, you know, 
a plethora of um, Australian rare earth companies um, start to move towards uh, or down the production pathway. Linus is obviously the only um, you know, real Western um, uh, rare earth producer, but we've seen um, you know, a number of other Australian junior um, companies um, contemplate you know, building refineries and rare earth production facilities. I think Dreadnought themselves, um, you know, they're still um, at exploration stage. They're still trying to find out what exactly is on their ground. However, um, they do have the advantage in the sense that um, they don't need to build, you know, downstream production facilities themselves. It could, um, you know, they could piggyback off other people's work, essentially. But I think, you know, the broader... Um, I guess idea is that um, uh, you know all, all the, um, the the great the underlying driver behind um, you know the adoption of EVs is essentially decarbonisation. So I think that it's important not to look at this as just something uh, a particular thematic restricted to rare earths itself, but it's probably broadly bullish other battery metals uh, like lithium. And, uh, Lithium's not overcrowded, in your view? Uh, it is and it isn't. <laughs> um, Go on. I could probably talk to you for lithium about a long time. <laughs> I guess the main point that I'm trying to draw here is that um, there's uh, you know, a, a big push by government um, across the board um, to move towards electric vehicles and greater electrification. So, um, for instance, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., um, that provides tax credits for um, uh, particular end products, given that um, minerals and metals are sourced um, from the right jurisdictions. So I think that in itself adds an enormous amount of value for um, uh, projects of this nature in friendly jurisdictions like Australia, which um, uh, you know, can be cl- uh, tax credits can be claimed under the IRA. Um, so it, it's really, um, you need to know the details, I guess, in, in this sphere to really benefit from it rather than, you know, sort of spraying and praying um, just because you think, um, you know, it could, uh, a particular company uh, might produce a particular commodity. Now, lithium is what springs to mind when people think about renewables and batteries. Um, do you have any lithium exposures? Uh, we do in a very small way. Um, I think that um, any sort of metal or mineral um, uh, can be invested in a multitude of ways. For example, um, lithium has to undergo a number of processing steps to make it into a usable um, end commodity for a battery producer. And um, so there's a number of ways to express that. Um, You can go and invest upstream in in the you know deposits that are coming out of the ground itself, or um, you could invest um, in the midstream capacity, which yeah basically converts the upstream um, raw commodity into something that's um, usable for the end client. So there's a number of ways that you can express that. Let's turn to the new small caps fund. Um, some people will be wondering, I guess, why pull yourself away from a good thing by starting a new fund. Um, 
and in small caps, no less, a space that's been brutalised over the past couple of years. So I guess I'm just wondering why small caps and why now? It's interesting that you mentioned that small caps have been brutalised over the last 12 to 18 months, because that's certainly, um, uh, I guess, the nuance that we've picked up on. Uh, in particular, you know, we have observed that a material divergence has occurred between uh, the XJO, which is the ASX 200 index, and the XSO, which is the small caps index. So that the small cap index is basically um, the ASX 300 uh, minus the top 100 companies. And um, this divergence we've um, observed has occurred historically. Uh, once in the early 2000s, you know, coming out of the dot-com bust, and again in the early 2010s, sort of post-GFC. And in both instances, this actually portended a period of um, very strong returns for uh, active small cap managers across the board. So I guess, essentially, um, our thesis is that this um, dynamic will reoccur in, in the sense of the two indexes uh, reconverging in... Um, following years going forward. And that's um, something that has caught our interest and we wish to capitalise on it. A bit of reversion to the main? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think that, you know, the the interesting part of, um, or, or I guess the, the main driver, I would say, that has um, underpinned this valuation mismatch is really the end of zero interest rate policies. Um, that have you know adjusted valuations downwards purely due to the rise in um, the cost of capital. Ultimately, when you think about it, and um, you know, given um, small caps are generally illiquid, you know, we've seen the uh, this effect um, become or, or be more pronounced at the lower end of the market, which ultimately um, we feel opportunity abounds in in this sector. What investors are you targeting with this fund and what role do you see this small caps fund um, playing in their portfolios? Sure. So um, this small cap fund, we are targeting towards wholesale investors. So that's our traditional um, investor base, high net worth, family offices, institutions. Um, the role we see it playing in investor portfolios is um, broad brush um, exposure to the small cap um, sector itself. Um, I remember reading a research note from Goldman Sachs not too long ago, um, and they were uh, basically demonstrating that the alpha that is um, evident in the small cap sector cannot be captured via um, passive instruments like ETFs or other um, yeah, funds of similar nature. And ultimately, uh, and coupled with that, I actually saw um, another study uh, undertaken by the University of New South Wales um, highlighting that um, the importance of manager skill and um, you know, manager skill being demonstrable in the small cap space in terms of achieving returns. Um, I think we have definitely um, proven over the almost last five years um, of our skill as stock pickers and um, I think it's very interesting that um, we're seeing large or you know, some of Australia's largest institutions in the future fund um, actively going out there and saying that we're going to start allocating capital 
to um, active small cap managers. And that really does tell you something. Do you think launching a second fund will take any of the energy away um, that you've put into the absolute return fund, um, which is still itself a very young fund? Uh, in a nutshell, no. Um, I think, you know, in our sort of flagship fund, we've done very well. You know, we've achieved, um, oh, we're approaching our five-year mark now. And, um, you know, over that period, we've achieved, um, you know, net compound returns to our investors of around 15% per annum. Um, and um, we started off in a very modest, modest manner, you know, uh, for that fund itself. We initially started with an investment team of um, just two, myself and um, uh, my analyst, um, who's still with me today and a very valuable uh, member of the team. And um, today we sit um, at um, six on the investment team, and that really allows us to cover a lot more ground in much greater granular detail. So um, I actually think that um, uh, we can utilize our resources well and really um, achieve some good outcomes by launching this um, uh, pure expression, <laughs> I guess, of, of um, a market opportunity that we've identified. Yeah, so you're now going pure small caps with this new fund. Um, how much success have you had with your small cap allocation in the absolute return fund? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would probably say the majority of our return attribution from equities has actually been from the small cap space itself. So I think um, when we do... <laughs> You're a small cap manager and you didn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think that, you know, um, you know in, in many ways what we've achieved today, at, you know, 15% per annum, we've achieved that with fairly... Um, you know, with a greater than you, than typical um, cash weighting. So our cash weighting has been sort of in the mid-teens historically on average and uh, notwithstanding also our historical um, allocation to, to fixed income has also been, I guess, um, a contributor, but it's also been a little bit of a handbrake. So I think the opportunity here is that um, we've um, when you split out our return attribution, um, our returns from the small cap space have actually been um, very significant and perhaps above uh, you know, our achieved returns you know, in aggregate for the, for the fund. So, um, but notwithstanding, um, high returns generally come with high volatility, but um, there's definitely, um, or I would say there's probably a, 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 you know, an opportunity for um, this product to be part of a well-diversified portfolio and um, can augment returns in aggregate for investors. Do you apply the same process to the smalls as you do for the large caps? Yes, we do. Um, I think that large caps, a lot of the return is driven by um, the dynamics in the sector, where, uh, whereas I find in the small cap space is that um, the company's fundamentals itself you know, uh, probably more important. More variation within them but than Correct. between sectors. Yes, exactly. All right, so take us through the process of building this small cap fund. Um, you know, what sectors and, and companies are going to make it up? I think the way we build our portfolios um, typically is um, we tend to take a top-down approach uh, from a sector perspective. Um, 
and um, then we tend to sort of um, fill out the portfolio in a bottom-up sort of manner in terms of selecting the individual positions at the company level. Um, I think from what we have observed, there are some very clear and obvious opportunities in uh, technology, financial services, and health in particular, incidentally, um, as well as, you know, selectively in the resource space itself. So I think, you know, we really do have um, uh, a rich and eclectic um, <laughs> range of um, potential sector exposures and individual company positions that we've identified, um, uh, you know, with the intent that effectively we are trying to uh, trying to pick up upon, you know, the blue chip companies of tomorrow mm -hmm. effectively and hold them for the longer term and uh, really benefit from that exposure as these companies um, grow and mature into market levers, we hope. Yeah, so you notably bought Afterpay um, at about $6. Wish I did too. <laughs> what about Afterpay stood out to you then? Um, and which sector do you see producing the next market darling like Afterpay? Something that stuck out was that uh, with Afterpay is A, their rate of growth. Um, in those early days, it was coming off a very low base. Um, however, it was actually, um, yeah, outside of um, the typical disclosures um, uh, that you know the company were making to the ASX, uh, it was actually remarkably simple to uh, just observe what was happening in society. I remember when the penny dropped, I was walking through a shopping mall on the weekend, and I was noticing that hey, hold on, this company Afterpay that we've looked at during the week and um, we sort of um, yeah, tossed it on the scrap heap actually, I think at about five bucks, I actually noticed, hey, hold on, half the shops in shopping mall have an Afterpay stick on it. So that's when it kind of um, got me that, oh, well, you know, I've obviously missed something here. And when we dug deeper and we understood the business model and, um, you know, I guess the mathematical principles, um, behind the model, um, that's when the penny dropped and we actually became quite bullish on the company itself and could see all the advantages and um, most importantly, a path towards sustaining growth and um, to give us conviction that this just wasn't a quarterly or half yearly or even annual anomaly, but there was a real shot to um, you know, grow into something materially bigger. And ultimately it culminated in Australia's largest ever M&A <laughs> um, transaction. So, and it all started for you with with noticing a few stickers on a few counters. I mean, I guess that speaks to you know the fact that, and and not to downplay the process that I'm sure followed that observation, yeah. but ideas can come from anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it also importantly, um, yeah, demonstrates you can't be too. Uh, wedded to your initial evaluations or, or impressions you have to always keep an open mind and be flexible and be willing to admit that you're wrong and um, I'll be the first to admit that we don't get everything right but we have to um, keep an open mind you know to <laughs> and and be humble enough to acknowledge and accept that 
Have you noticed any red flags in the small cap space, any sectors that you know you might steer clear of, at least in the earliest stages of the fund? Uh, yes, I think, well, in, in small caps, you have to be quite focused on um, ensuring the business model is sustainable, I would say is um, the number one point. There's a lot of what I would characterise as science projects out there or, or um, business models that um, are overly speculative, even um, uh, you know, in more traditional sectors, I guess, like industrials. There's a lot of um, speculative companies across the board. Um, and secondly, I would probably say uh, the teams that are running the show, um, it's important to evaluate them in the appropriate manner and ensure that um, uh, you're dealing with people of integrity and skill as well is something that is um, <laughs> not often evaluated, um, I find. Is there a difference between loss-making and speculation? Or, or like, mm. is there a difference rather between loss-making and specy companies? Yes, I would say so. Um, and what is yeah, and what is that difference? Yes, I would probably say that um, a loss-making company could have a viable business model. Um, however, there may be you know the business itself may be influenced by seasonal or cyclical uh, you know effects, basically, um, or it could be run in an inefficient manner. Um, Speculative companies I'd characterise as having uh, effectively things like unproven technology. That's something I, I very often come across on the ASX, that um, companies have um, big dreams but uh, may have or may claim to have great technology but ultimately uh, may not be able to execute or, or, or you know, even have an end buyer for what they're trying to produce. Um, or ultimately, you know, it, they may have a conventional business, but um, the competition and industry structure is not really conducive to, um, you know, investor returns and or, or any sort of economic returns. It could be just a, a little company in a very crowded marketplace where there's no real use case and um, uh, they're just sort of living hand to mouth on raising capital off people who don't know any better. So you, you mentioned before um, the importance of um, sustain, finding sustainable companies. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of bottom-up fundamentals, um, mm -hmm. what's the first thing you look for um, that, that will contribute or will define whether a company is sustainable or not? I think the single most important thing is whether they're uh, offering you know, products or services of value and of use. I think that, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of companies trying to reinvent the wheel. And um, I think you have to have a really strong, um, strongly developed sense, uh, you know, of common sense, basically, and, and being practical. Um, you know, why would you um, buy groceries off, um, for example, a, a local neighbourhood store versus a Coles or Woolworths? You know, ultimately, that's uh, that's like an analogy that I use. But um, sure, there may be a reason. But could you see, you know, a neighbourhood store scaling up to you know the same level? 
as a causal Woolworths. I think there are very obvious impediments and um, uh, frictional elements there uh, where you would probably say it's quite unlikely. Um, so we use, you know, uh, we use a, you know, we have to have a strong dose of reality when we're looking at these sort of companies and, and business models to really understand, well, are they offering something that's unique or is it just a generic, uh, you know, commodity or product or service which can be provided by you know incumbent players ultimately i can hear the influence of buffett uh, (laughs) in that in that response yeah yeah and i think that um warren buffett himself you know i think that um i think his real strength has been the ability to pick um products and services that are essential to the workings of an economy and I think that's um, uh, been fairly consistent throughout, but also um, little luxuries that people, you know, <laughs> will always use. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah, I think that it's, it's quite important to ask these very basic but fundamental questions <laughs> to yourself when evaluating any investment opportunity. These fundamentals, these metrics, they have to be supported by a narrative that makes you know, intuitive sense. Yeah, a narrative and ultimately investing in the smaller, um, oh, in the smaller end of the market, um, we always want to see um, growth ultimately because growth is how you get your returns in the small um, end of the market. There's no point, I guess, or for us, there's no point in investing in a little company and sitting there for 10 years, but, you know, having no growth <laughs> realised from that and and, you know, being at square one, because what many people don't um, uh, take into account is inflation, ultimately. Um, you know, inflation is uh, every day. It's chipping away at um, your purchasing power. So you really need to achieve returns um, in excess of inflation to get ahead. Emmanuel, we always like to finish these conversations with three questions we always pose to our fund managers. Um, the first one is, what's one thing investors are getting wrong about markets at the moment? I would probably say um, inflation is something that is still not well understood. I think that people understand that it's here to stay now, but from my observation, they haven't really factored it into their um investment decision-making as of yet. I think that inflation is a double-edged sword, right? I think that it's highly detrimental to particular companies, but it's also highly favourable to um, other companies. And I think that ultimately uh, we're aiming to focus on companies that will massively benefit um, from continuing and sustained inflation but in aggregate you know inflation is a terrible thing or overly high inflation i should say is a terrible thing for for markets we've seen historically could you share a story of a big win or a big loss you've had in your investing career what was it and what did you learn from it yeah sure so i think that's an interesting one look i would probably say that um A big win that we've had over the past few years has been investing in a company, a listed company known as Adriatic Metals, ADT is a ticker. I think that um, our key learning 
from this is really investing in quality assets, um, quality management teams that are aligned with shareholders, and being a and being um, I guess having the appetite to really understand and um, capitalize upon other investors' fears. Um, these are the three sort of um, uh, top elements, I would say, that really uh, has made this um, investment successful. So to give you a bit of context, um, uh, we first bought into Adriatic when I think the market cap was about 150 odd mil. Uh, effectively, Adriatic had made um, a great mineral discovery uh, in um, uh, a non-typical mining jurisdiction uh, in Bosnia. And um, at that time, people, I mean, even today, people, the first thing you think of, um, well, I think of, <laughs> or I did think of at that time, was that, oh, you know, Bosnian war and all the troubles um, within that region. However, um, and so that obviously, you know, put off other investors, um, but we were able to get our heads around um, what was um, the reality today not having, uh, I, I guess, a bias that was rooted, uh, you know, in um, in years prior, you know, twenty or twenty five years prior, and um, today, you know, the company um, sits at a billion dollar market cap, and we've held on to the vast majority of our stock and truly benefited from that exposure. And I think you know the key learning is that um, you really have to be focused and um, have staying power and persistence <laughs> in in uh, maintaining exposure to quality assets, very high quality assets, I should say, of very clear and obvious value, and really um, backing the teams that can execute and um, realize value from these assets. So I think that's really been you know, a couple of key learnings from this particular investment. Question three, if markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, uh, which company would that be and why? And I should add the disclaimer here that this is purely hypothetical. We don't recommend owning one share portfolios. Look, I would probably say I wouldn't um, invest in a single company. I would probably take upon or will be invested across a range of Australian insurers and why that is <laughs> is that um, oh, I should say probably large cap insurers and why I say that is because um, if you're holding an investment for five years you want to obviously reduce the uncertainty of the outcome at the end of the line so to me that means that these companies have to be cash generative generative and they have to be profitable but they also have to be um, insulated from externalities like government policy, sovereign risk, etc., whilst also um, being an essential service, essentially with exposure to growth in volumes. Um, population growth is is something that comes to mind, but also pricing via inflation. So um, I think that Australian um, large cap insurers um, possess all these qualities. So I'd be pretty comfortable. Um, uh, yeah, investing money in a portfolio of these exposures. Manuel, this has been a great chat. Thanks so much for coming on. I'd love to have you back on the podcast soon. No worries, David. Thanks for having me. 
Hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. I'll see you next time.